Let's turn to God's Word now. We're going to be reading from the book of Luke, Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. You see in just a minute, this is the temptation of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness. So Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil, the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. But before we look at God's word, let's pray for his help and understanding. Lord, help us to see as we look at First Samuel, help us to see the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of our salvation in Jesus Christ, the way that he is our perfect king, the one who has obeyed in our place and leads us and protects us. Make our mind and our desires, you know, our actions more and more conformed to his image. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so I said this evening, our sermon comes from 1 Samuel 13. It's 1 Samuel chapter 13. We'll be reading the whole passage together. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. 
He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. Another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison, the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Well, we're kind of stopping in the middle of a story because um, Samuel 13 to 14 is really one big story about Saul fighting the Philistines. And these chapters focus really on one event, but they're meant to show us a kind of summary of Saul's kingship. And it's not an encouraging story because in every part of this story in chapters 13 to 14, Saul demonstrates that he is a foolish and faithless king. The Lord still chooses to save Israel through Saul, but already in chapter 13 we see God's plan to provide Israel with a better king than King Saul, to provide Israel with a king after God's own heart. And that idea is really what is at the center of this passage, that God wants and will provide a faithful king. God wants a faithful king, and he will provide a faithful king for himself and for Israel. So we look at this passage, we'll see three things. We'll see the, the threat to Israel in verses 1 to 7. Then we'll see, secondly, the failure of faith in verses 8 to 15. And finally, we'll see the need for God's help 
in verses 15 to 23. So first, the threat to Israel, verses 1 to 7. The passage begins actually in a, in a fairly encouraging way. Uh, one of Saul's first actions is to establish an army of 3,000 men to protect Israel. This is exactly what a king should be doing. We know that he's been promised to be the one who's going to protect Israel, to deliver Israel from her enemies. And here is Saul putting concrete plans in place to protect God's people. You might be able to see if you have a footnote in your Bible. Verse 1 is unclear about when this happened because there's some confusion about what the original text means about the age of Saul and how long he reigned. Some translations of the Old Testament, for instance, list Saul's age as 30 years old. I'm not going to go into detail now about the text, but I think there are a few possible solutions that remain true to the text. If you want more information, you can talk to me later. Um, But the basic idea is clear. The basic idea is that Saul established this army soon after he became king. Again, he is taking wise steps toward defending Israel from her enemies. And as we see in verses 3 to 4, there's even success in fighting the Philistines. Jonathan, Saul's son, attacks the Philistines at Geba and he drives out the garrison. But now, in the face of this success, we see the threat of the Philistines. Verse 4, Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. In verse 5, the Philistines respond. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Uh, This is an enormous army by any standards, but especially the standards of the time. The question is, what can Israel do to defeat the Philistines now? It seems impossible given the Philistine army. Well, remember the last chapter. Just have to look back a few verses to 1 Samuel 12. Samuel called Israel to trust and obey God in any and every circumstance. Remember what he said. He said that God was willing to forgive their sin in choosing a king. And God has renewed his covenant with them. And part of God's covenant promises with his people is that he would never, ever forsake Israel and instead he would defend his people. But now in chapter 13, it looks like many Israelites do not remember or believe God's promises. When the Philistines arrive The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people were hard-pressed and they hid themselves. They hid themselves in all these different places and some of them even crossed the Jordan to get away from the Philistines. The Israelites are hiding and running from their enemies. Now, I don't want to downplay the threat of the Philistines. This was a real danger to life and property. This was maybe the greatest danger that this generation of Israelites had faced. So running and hiding are understandable responses. But they aren't responses of faith and obedience. Trusting and obeying God can be hard even when things are going well. But God is testing his people. 
He's testing his people through the Philistines and he's testing their faith in him. And it's not starting well. Notice also that the people's response of hiding and running away is also not obeying God's chosen king. They are not obeying King Saul. Saul called Israel to join him for war at Gilgal. And some did come. Verse 7 says all the people followed him trembling. But from the previous verses, we know that so many others in Israel disobeyed their king. They're disobeying God, not trusting God. And they are disobeying their king, whom God has chosen. So Israel has responded to the circumstances. And they have responded in fear and not in faith. Many do not believe that God will save them or that he will use Saul to do that. It turns out that Israel is not the only one who is being tested. Saul is being tested. And that leads us secondly to the failure of faith. Verses 8 through 15. Saul dramatically fails God's test. Right? We see the test in verse 8. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Now Samuel must have sent a message to Saul to wait for him for seven days. We don't have a record of that message. But Saul clearly knows what he's supposed to be doing. He knows what Samuel has told him. And I'm sure that waiting and trusting God was hard for Saul. There is no Samuel, and Saul's army is beginning to desert. And as Saul adds in verse 12, he was worried. This is a legitimate fear. He was worried that the Philistines were going to come over the mountains and attack him at Gilgal. The reason I say this is because I do not want us to underestimate how hard God's test of Saul's faith really was. God is, is asking Saul to exercise amazing faith in him. But Saul fails God's test. And Saul sinfully responds to the circumstances that God has sovereignly placed him in. See verse 9. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. On the surface, this may not seem like a very big deal, but this was a major sin by Saul. Only God's chosen representatives, the priests and a man like Samuel, his prophet, only these men were allowed to sacrifice to God. Look at a book like Leviticus. It is full of the sacrifices, what you were supposed to do and who was supposed to do it. God is very, very clear. So Saul sins by not following God's word. He doesn't follow God's word through Samuel to wait. And he does not follow God's word to let someone else do the sacrifice. Someone like Samuel One of the saddest parts of this passage is in verse 10 because we read that Saul sinned just before Samuel appeared, right? As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Saul would have only had to be faithful for just a little longer. Really just a few minutes longer. 
And if he had been faithful, he would have passed God's test and he would have been abundantly blessed. But he doesn't. He acts in fear and he acts in sin. And Samuel is very straightforward with Saul. He confronts him about his sin in verse 11. But Saul responds by rationalizing his sin, by giving excuses instead of repenting. As we've seen, Saul thought he had very good reasons to break God's word. And as you listen to Saul's words here carefully, the evil in his heart becomes even more apparent. First, we see that Saul thought that the burnt offerings guaranteed God's favor. It says, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. It didn't matter to Saul who performed the sacrifices as long as they were done. Saul is demonstrating a mechanistic view of worshiping God. As long as the right thing is done, even if it's done in the wrong way, God will bless him. That's a way of controlling God. God will bless me if I do what I think is right, not what he says is right. So we see his, his heart toward God, his mechanistic view of worship. We also see his bad theology. Saul says, so I forced myself and I offered the burnt offerings. That verb is very important. I forced myself. Uh, Saul is trying to make himself look like a reluctant sinner. Someone who had to overcome his deep desire to obey God. But no one ever forces themselves to sin. That's one of the basic teachings of the Bible. We give in to temptation and sin, but we do not force ourselves to sin. Saul knows that. Saul knows that just as well as we do. But he's taking further steps to rationalize his sin. Samuel has been gracious to confront him, and Saul just keeps digging in. He's trying to emphasize his apparent righteousness. And yet at every turn, his sin becomes more and more clear and more and more serious. So we think about Saul's sins here. It's worth pointing out that this is not the first time we've seen these kinds of sins in 1 Samuel. What is Saul doing? He's ignoring God's word and he's corrupting God's worship. That pattern should sound familiar because we saw these same things happen in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel. We saw these sins in the sins of the priests of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, and we saw these same sins with the elders of Israel. I know the details of the sins are different, but the pattern is the same. Remember how Hophni and Phinehas corrupted God's worship by ignoring God's commands for the sacrifices. And the elders of Israel thought that they could control God by bringing the ark of God into battle. And remember God's judgment for their sins? Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. And Israel suffered a great defeat. Remembering God's past judgment prepares us for God's judgment on Saul here. We see that judgment in verses 13 to 14. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. 
For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Let the significance of those words sink in. If Saul had obeyed, if he had lasted just those few extra minutes, he would have had an everlasting kingdom. But because Saul sinned, not even his son Jonathan will rule. His kingdom is over. Does that seem like too harsh a judgment? We're tempted to point to extenuating circumstances just like Saul does. Saul was under a lot of pressure. Maybe God should have given Saul a break. But God doesn't, and neither should we. And part of our problem uh, is that we often don't see God's radical holiness. Saul definitely did not see God as a holy God who loves obedience above everything else. You know, we... We know that we need to be holy as God is holy, but like Saul, so often we rationalize our sin. We try to explain away what we've done, blaming circumstances, blaming other people, sometimes even blaming God. Did you notice how Saul did that? Saul says, you, Samuel, you didn't come. You're part of the problem. Sometimes we do those very same things as we try to rationalize our sin. We do not see God as a holy God. Now part of the problem with Saul's sin in particular is that he's the king. He has a special role. He is not just a private person. And Saul has publicly ignored God's word and corrupted God's worship and he has encouraged Israel to join him in this kind of rebellion against God. As king, Saul had greater responsibility for obedience. And that means the judgment on his sin is higher as well. You can think of today of the greater responsibility, for instance, of leaders in the church. Pastors and elders in particular, we have a great responsibility before God and our judgment is greater as well. So we see that the way that Saul sins, and the way that Saul sins because of who he is, fits the Lord's judgment. The Lord's judgment fits the seriousness of Saul's sin. Samuel ends his message with further condemnation of Saul, but he also ends with grace, with good news for Israel. Notice what he says in verse 14. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, again, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel is just drilling home the reality of Saul's sin of disobedience. But there's good news there in that verse as well. Saul will be replaced with a king after God's own heart. This is exactly the kind of king God desires and Israel needs. A king who will faithfully follow God no matter what the circumstances are. And we see this promise fulfilled initially in David. Think about how David obeys God in very difficult circumstances. How is he a God after a king after God's own heart? Well, David's first public act after being anointed by Samuel, his first act as the new king, though he's not reigning yet, his first act is to publicly defend God against the insults of Goliath. I want you to think forward to 1 Samuel 16. Remember what Saul does? 
No, you don't, because Saul doesn't do anything in that situation to defend God's honor. We are meant to see the contrast between Saul the faithless king and David the faithful king. Later, David is going to demonstrate amazing faithfulness to God at critical moments in his conflict with Saul. At least twice, chapter 24 and 26, David has a chance to kill Saul. But he is a king after God's own heart. And David chooses to honor Saul as God's anointed and he decides to leave the future up to God. So David is coming. God will provide a faithful king. But in 1 Samuel 13, Israel is stuck with a sinful king. They are stuck with King Saul. And we see that the people are affected because as Saul has rejected God, so God rejects Saul. Notice that Samuel doesn't stick around. Samuel abandons Saul. He leaves him with his army. That's very significant because Saul has turned his back on God's word and now God is removing his word and his prophet, not just from Saul, but also from the people. Saul's sin is affecting the people of God in very serious ways. Saul and Israel are in a very serious situation. That leads us to our third and final point, the need for God's help. Saul and Israel, they are under God's judgment for Saul's sin, and the situation seems to be getting out of control. As we read in verse 15, Saul's army started out as 3,000, now we're down to just 600 men. Everybody else has run away. And Philistine raiders are able to travel freely throughout all of Israel. And the situation only appears worse in verses 19 to 23 because it turns out that this tiny Israelite army, which is at the mercy of the Philistines, doesn't even have proper weapons. Only Saul and Jonathan, two people out of 600, only two people have swords or spears. Do you feel the tension in this section? If you remember earlier times in Israel's history, these kinds of circumstances are exactly when God acts to save his people. Remember Gideon, how many men did he have? He didn't even have 600, he had 300. Or remember Samson. Samson faces the Philistines alone and delivers Israel. When Israel seems to be the most helpless... God shows himself to be a strong savior. But here's the tension. What about now? What about now? What about with sinful Saul? Saul has not kept God's covenant. Will the hand of the Lord now be against Israel and Saul? Or will God choose to be gracious? Will he choose to save Israel despite Saul? Because God has promised not to forsake his people. I don't think it's much of a spoiler alert to say that God steps in to save his people. We'll see that in chapter 14. But the tension we feel here, that the threat of God's judgment because of Saul's sin, makes us really look forward to that day when God provides the king after his own heart. Because when he does that, when he gives Israel a king that he desires and a king that they need, then 
Israel will be blessed by God. Ultimately, God is promising King Jesus here. David was good, but he sinned. And he sinned with Bathsheba, and he sinned also in numbering the people. And both times, the people suffered greatly because of his sin. Do you remember the thousands of people who died because he numbered the people? Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned. And because of his obedience, we are made right with God. We are blessed by God. Think about it. Jesus is the king after God's own heart. And he's the king after God's own heart because he is God. He is the son of God. In his divinity, he shares the divine will. But he also perfectly obeys with his human will as well. He says that his food and drink is to do his father's will. That is Jesus speaking as a human in his human nature. Jesus is a king after God's own heart because he's the son and he is God's beloved son. God the Father can publicly declare that in Christ and in Christ alone, he is well pleased. But if all of that is true, if he is the king after God's own heart, why does Jesus suffer God's judgment on the cross? Saul deserves what he receives here. He actually deserves worse than he gets. But Jesus did not deserve to suffer and to die. Well, Jesus suffers because he is obeying God's will. It was God's will for his perfect son to stand in our place and receive the just judgment for our sin because none of us, none of us can claim to be people after God's own heart. In our sin, we always want our own way. We follow our own sinful hearts instead of being conformed to God's heart and to God's will. But Jesus is our faithful, suffering king. And when he obeys to the point of death, he does that for us to save us from our sin. We are saved from the wrath of God and his perfect righteousness as the one who has obeyed in our place is now counted as ours. That's part of the blessings of salvation that his perfect work is counted as ours. And we receive God's abundant blessings now. Not because we're perfect, not because we always obey God's will, but because Jesus did. And Jesus continues to give us God's blessing. Now there are many practical applications from this passage that I could make. I'm just going to mention a few before we move on what I really want us to see. I mean, there's the constant need to be obedient in all circumstances. We know that. Uh, there's the need to repent instead of rationalizing our sin when we disobey. And there's the reality that God does test our faith. Those are all important things to see from this passage. But tonight I wanted to leave us with the comfort of the gospel. God will make us people after his own heart because of his son. A son who lived a life of testing. Notice that Saul fails one test. Think about Jesus' life. He obeyed a lifetime of testing. His faith was always being tested from birth onward, but especially in his public ministry. We saw the beginning of his public ministry in the book of Luke as Satan tests him in the wilderness. That's a test of his faith. 
Will he obey and follow his father or will he follow Satan? And the rest of his public ministry, those three years, are marked by tests of his faith to the greatest test of his faith in God at the cross. Will he even go that far to follow his father? Will he put his faith in God, his father, to even submit to death? Will he obey knowing that there is the promise that he will be raised. And the good news of the gospel is exactly that, that he did that. And he did that for us because, like I said, you and I will fail. We will sin. You have already sinned in these ways today. Even in this last hour you have. Same goes for me. We have all sinned in these ways, but Jesus didn't. And like I said, that's why our His righteousness is counted as ours, but that's also why you can be forgiven. You can stand forgiven for all of those sins because Jesus obeyed. Jesus never failed that test of his faith. But that's also an encouragement for us when our faith is tested because as Jesus' faith was tested and he passed that test, So he enables you and I to pass those tests as well. Our faith will be strengthened enough to pass the tests that God has given us. So do you want to grow in obedience? Do you want to grow in your faith? Do you want to grow in those godly desires and faith in all circumstances to pass whatever test God puts in front of us? Well, take comfort because that is God's plan as well. Because Jesus was faithful, he's making you faithful as well. He is conforming us to the image of his perfect, obedient son, Jesus Christ. Take comfort in that. Take comfort in the obedience of Christ for you and take comfort in the fact that forgiveness is always possible. Take comfort in the work of our perfect king, not a human king, but a human and divine King, King Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, the truth of the gospel is so amazing that you have given us Jesus Christ to obey in our place, to die for us, and now to be working that same kind of faith and obedience in us so that when our faith is tested, we may fail, And you offer us forgiveness, but you also strengthen our faith to persevere, to obey better and better. And Lord, we thank you that uh, we can trust you to do that work. We thank you, Lord, that in Jesus Christ, our faith and our future are secure. And we pray that we would trust him in all circumstances to provide for us, to care for us, to pick us up when we fall, and to never cast us out. We thank you for that kind of compassion and that kind of grace you have for us as your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.